please uh, take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 8. For those of you that are visiting, uh, we've been in the book of Esther now uh, for the past uh, two months. And we continued in the book of Esther because I believe that the last several chapters of the book of Esther have some wonderful Christmas themes in them. And uh, it's it's a joy and a privilege to be able to share that with you today. Once again, my name is Pastor Dennis Lewis. And I am uh, the senior minister here, and I wanted to say quickly that I got a note from um, Roger Collins, who will be our associate uh, minister, and uh, he just wanted to say thank you all uh, for your prayers. He passed his exam, and um, yeah, some of you are like, what is that? Uh, Meet me afterwards, and I'll explain it to you uh, a little bit more in depth, but um, he got through that process. And um, we look to the Lord to bring him to us in uh, February. I also would like to make one more note. Uh, I know that this is the last day for our college students. Uh, I think this is the last Sunday our college students will be here, except those that live in the area. And so I just wanted to say we'll miss you. Uh, Several of you have gotten to know, and I thank the Lord for you and your faithfulness here. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some announcement, but just in case, there are exam cram bags in the back. Um, That's one way we could tangibly show you how much we love you is by giving you fat-filled goodies. And um, I'm sure those things come in handy as you are rushing around trying to study last minute, maybe an hour before your exams. Um, But I I hope those are a blessing to you, and hopefully they'll be a sign of our care and affection for you. We've been praying for you, and I hope you finish strong. All right, Esther chapter 8. I'm going to read a portion of Esther chapter 8, and I'm going to flip over and read a portion of Esther chapter 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, And if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, before he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's um, ring, for an edict written in in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, turn over to Esther chapter 9, and let's read verse 29 through verse 31. We'll become clear in a moment why I'm doing it this way. 
Esther chapter 9, verse 29 and 30 through 31 says this. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of kingdom of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their to their uh, fast and their lamenting all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of the Lord shall endure forever and this is the word that will be taught unto you amen and amen well let's pray father thank you for this time that we have to hear from your word to be challenged um, by your word to be comforted by your word to be given peace by your word And so bless us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. I'd like to begin by reading a few notes that that were given to me recently um, by people outside of our community. The first one is from a member of the Food Network. For those of you that don't know, we have a Food Network. It's more than just food that we provide, but we provide a community of folks to help people um, that deal with food insecurities. We, we teach them about things or talk to them through things about uh, like budget budgets. We provide prayer support for them. I mean, we provide, we've uh, switched over a little bit and provided um, clothing, health care, that sort of thing. It's far more comprehensive than just food. But here's one of the notes that we got from a member who, um, after a meeting, it said this, a big thank you for allowing me to be a part of this and the blessings I received from your leading, assistance, and generous food box. And she's sending this to Marsha, our administrative assistant who oversees the Food Network. She goes on to say, the morning was truthfully a direct answer to uh, specific prayers praising God for his faithfulness. Here's another uh, little note given to us by the staff of CVE. It says, Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, on behalf of the staff at CVE, that's Chattanooga Valley Elementary, that's right across from the church, we wish to thank you for all the delicious breakfast treats, none of which I ate, by the way, but I, I heard it was delicious. Um, They go on to say that you provided for our staff today. This meal is the most anticipated favorite of the staff each Christmas. You are so very appreciated. Thank you um, for filling our staff and lifting us all. Another member of our Villaway community, right before we had our last meeting for the year, stopped me and thanked me and, uh, and I hope the rest of you that are in that ministry with me, um, uh, they did the same for you. But they stopped and they thanked us for just showing up, for loving on them and caring for them, for, for, for providing things like dental care and fellowship and care for their souls. Another uh, one I heard recently is uh, some of you have had an impromptu prayer meeting with teachers about things that are going on in their lives. 
Some of you have gone so far as to provide uh, child care for others. Some of you have gone so far as to provide meals for others. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Well, first of all, this demonstrates the work of the Holy Spirit through our community. And that's why we do the things we do. We don't just do these things because this is what Christians do. Oh, no. We do these things because of the work of the Holy Spirit through us. But we do these things for another reason, very important reason. And that reason is found in Jeremiah 29, 7, when God, through Jeremiah, told the people to seek the welfare of the city or seek the welfare for us, for Flintstone, where they are living. The word welfare there is a, a word that some of you are familiar with, and it's the word shalom. And the word shalom means peace, but it's not just a greeting, because I hear people nowadays, everyone says shalom, like how they say namaste, you know? It's just like a greeting, but that's not shalom. What shalom is, it's, it's such a comprehensive meaning, and if you ever have time, I, I strongly urge you to study this, but the word shalom is an all-encompassing word, and it means to share peace or give peace by spreading goodness and kindness and to provide for the needs of others, to bring people out of conflict. The word shalom means to bring people together. The word shalom is to provide a sense of uh, completeness and wholeness to the people that are around you. It's to be the one to uh, stop conflict instead of uh, creating conflict. That's what shalom is. And that is what our churches ought to be doing. And that's what you and I ought to be doing. That's why we go out in the community and do what we do. We pray for people and provide for people and care for people. I know some of you are part of prison ministries. Why do you do that? Because you want to offer peace to prisoners through the word of God. That's what it means to be a Christian, but that's not also what it means to be a Christian. That's at the heart of Christmas. That's at the heart of who Christ is. Remember when Christ was born, what did the angels proclaim? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. It's that peace that Christ came to provide, that comprehensive peace. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah, what did Isaiah call him? He called him the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, the one who will come and establish ultimate peace in the world. And by virtue of Christ's work in establishing peace, you and I as God's people are called to establish peace as well, to spread the message of shalom in our communities, in our homes, and wherever we go. And so this morning, very briefly, I want to talk, talk to two ways in which we spread peace in our communities, in our homes, and everywhere we go. One, I want to show you that Christ enables us to spread physical peace. And the second one is Christ enables us to spread spiritual peace. Let's look at this today. First of all, in Esther chapter 8, Christ allows us, and in this passage, allows Esther to spread physical peace. Now, you notice in verse number 1 and 2, it said that the enemies of the Jews have been vanquished, namely Haman. 
Haman was the one that's causing conflict. Haman was the one that wanted to destroy God's people. And it says that Haman had been hanged. And you might be wondering, well, if Haman is hanged, if Haman has been destroyed, then why is God's people still in calamity? We see that here in verse verse number 3, 4, and 5. Esther goes before the king, and she's weeping and crying. And she says uh, at the end of verse number 6, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? If you read this text, you're saying, well, wait a minute. Haman has been dealt with. Haman has been uh, uh, taken care of. Why is it now that the people of Israel are still um, facing destruction and calamity? And here's why. Because even though Haman has been destroyed, his edict, his work here within uh, the kingdom of Susa has not been destroyed. It's continuing to have an impact on the lives of God's people. And there's an important truth I don't want you to miss. The Bible tells us that, that Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. Christ has destroyed the devil. Christ said to his followers that Satan fell like lightning, meaning uh, the work of redemption has been done. It has taken care of Satan. And yet we see Satan still causing calamity in the here and now. Satan is still causing destruction to God's people in the here and now. That the work of redemption through God's people still need to be done. In the same way in this passage, Esther said, yes, even though Haman has been destroyed, Haman's edict and what Haman did is still having an effect on God's people in the same way Even though Satan has been taken care of, the effects of sin are still on God's people. We still, as God's people, have to do the work of redemption in our communities. We, as God's people, through the power of the Holy Spirit, still have to go forth and do the work that God has laid on us to do. Notice that you see in verse number 3 that Esther is showing compassion on her people. She weeps for them. She cries for them. It says, how can I see, in verse number 6, how can I see the calamity coming upon our people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The word see there has the idea of to show compassion. Esther, even though she is safe, even though she's being taken care of, Esther still realizes that people in her community are still in trouble. They're still feeling the effects of sin. And so it says that Esther showed compassion on them. Now, this is what Christians ought to be doing, is spreading shalom in their community by taking care of the physical needs of those around us. There's a great illustration of this in church history. Back um, in the early part of the church, there was a, a a grave famine in Caesarea. And there was a man by the name of Eusebius of Caesarea, and he was a historian. And one of the things that, uh, that you ought to know about um, Eusebius is this. He was not a Christian. And as this famine came, uh, uh, Eusebius said that everyone left the city and went to the, country, uh, went to the country to escape the famine. But Eusebius stayed behind. And here's what Eusebius wrote. He said, when it came 
about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests. Then I think the Christians observed the fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. All day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to, the, uh, to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and disputed, uh, distributed bread to them all. They support not only their poor, but ours as well, as men see that our people lack aid from us. Now remember this, because this is so critical. Eusebius is not a Christian. And for him, he had no context for this. Why are these Christians coming, even though they're suffering, even though they don't have food, even though they can't provide for themselves? Why are they still going and providing for the needs of others? Why are they still going and showing compassion to people who are not a part of their community? Well, the reason why they're doing that is because they have a mandate from God to spread shalom, to spread peace. And that's what we as Christians aim to do. And it's a powerful reminder from this text. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, how can we do this practically? Well, I've given you some examples. We are already doing this. We're already doing this in our community. But we also need to do it one place else, and it's in our homes. You know, it's amazing to me as Christians, right? We, we go out in our community, and we should. We, we help those in our community, and we should. We try to seek the peace of those in our community, and we should. But you know the first place we should seek the peace of? Our own homes. Recently, um, my wife uh, took my oldest daughter, and she went to uh, Athens, Georgia. They went on vacation. I'm just kidding. They didn't. They went to uh, uh, some kind of retreat um, or some kind of um, competition for, for music. And I was left with our three younger ones. And as I was trying my best to care for them, every so often, conflict broke out. Um, and, you know, uh, my children normally are, are well-behaved and good people, uh, good children. But every now and then, conflict broke out. And so I ran downstairs and I said, what are you all doing? Stop fighting each other and biting each other and throwing things at each other. And as I kept doing this, after a while, I started to get a little annoyed. I'm like, man, why don't they just get it? You know, why don't they just, why don't they just like figure this out? And then I realized in that moment, that's my responsibility. My responsibility is to create shalom in my home. That's the first line of defense. Just like for all of us inside here, our first responsibility is to create shalom in our homes. Husband and wife, your calling is to make shalom between you two in your marriage, to love one another and care for one another. Parents, your responsibility is to care for your children and to bring shalom in your home with your children. It starts in our home. Yes, we, we ought to go out in the community and seek the welfare of those in the community. But it starts in our home. That's the first line of defense. Now, uh, I want to point out one last thing before I leave this point. This is so critical. What surprised me about this text is that as Esther seeks to save her people and to care for her people, Esther has no idea that 475 years later, her actions of seeking peace for her people 
would one day bring forth the Prince of Peace and the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you realize that, that the, ne- the person that was in line of Christ lived in Susa at this time? That the very descendant of Christ was in Susa, and these are the people that Esther are praying over and weeping over and saying, Lord, uh, I need to save these people. These same pe- that same person that was in the line of Christ was the same person that Esther was helping. And here's the point that I want to make to you that's so important, that stood out to me as I read this text, and it's this. It is so important for you and I to do the work of shalom in our communities because we have no idea wh- how God is using that to bless future generations. I re- never forget when I was growing up, there was a man that lived next door to us. And um, every so often he would come over and he would bring fruits from his garden for people in the community and for people like me. We didn't have much uh, back then but his gifts from his garden was such a blessing to, uh, to me and my family. And I, I remember many years later, I went back to find him and to let him know what a, what a joy and a blessing he was uh, t- uh, to me and to my family, but he had since died. And I remember thinking to myself that this man had no idea what a blessing he was to me and my family at that time. And how through his acts of kindness, the Lord sustained me and my family. And here I am today being used of God to share peace and love to others as well. Beloved, beloved, none of us know, none of us know how our acts of kindness, of sharing peace, what that does in terms of redemptive history. You teachers in here today, you have no idea of how your love and care for your students is going to produce a vast treasure trove of blessings in future generations. You administrators, you people that that are on your job, you're doing work that's going to have an impact for future generations. The decisions that you make to, to change somebody's tire or to pay a bill for someone or to just speak a kind word to someone, to stop someone and say, hey, can I pray for you? All of these things are woven together as a part of God's redemptive work to be a blessing not just to you, but for future generations to come. That's the power behind what you and I do. God doesn't allow any kindness that we do to go unrewarded because all of those things are a part of God's glorious, redemptive reality. That's physical peace. That's what we're called to do. In fact, the Bible calls us to be peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Those that go out into the world and spread shalom to our communities. Now, that's physical peace. Let's look at spiritual peace. Turn over back to Esther chapter 9. And this is why I had you read it. In Esther chapter 9 and verse number 30. After, and we're going to read this, uh, we're going to read a lot of this next week. But after the enemies of Israel have been vanquished and taken care of, there's a feast established known as the Feast of Purim. And like I said, we'll talk more about that next week. But notice the goal of the Feast of Purim. In verse number 30, it says, Letters were sent out to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, 
that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their feast and their lamenting. Now pause for a moment and ask yourself this question. If the enemies of Israel have been taken care of as well, why establish a feast? And why say that this feast is a reminder of peace and truth? Here's the reason why. If you read through the Bible, every time there's an establishment of a feast, every time there's an establishment of a feast similar to this, the feast is meant to, rep- uh, to, to point to, yes, the physical reality, but also the spiritual realities, the future spiritual realities behind it. And here's why that's significant. The Jews understood that the peace that they have now will be taken away. Of course they understood that. But the whole point of establishing the Feast of Purim is that they were reminded that they're also a recipient of the peace that cannot be taken away. The peace that's found in Yahweh. The peace that's given in Yahweh. And here's a powerful lesson for each and every one of us. Because this has a direct parallel with the world. The world gives peace. Do you know that? It does. I'm not going to run from that. The world gives a kind of peace. You see, the world offers physical peace as well. We all have bank accounts. We have jobs. We have police departments. We have homes. We have functioning cars. The world provides all sorts of peace. Uh, Recently, a, a very influential book was written about the peace in the world. It's called, uh, the, the book I think is called Enlightenment Now. And in the book, it talks about how all of us, right, we live in a world where there's no need for God because the world is as peaceful as it's ever been. That through medical care, through jobs, through increased wealth, you don't need to be a Christian in order to have peace. In fact, you might, real, you might see recently that England and Ireland just went from majority Christian to now majority secular. As I read through some of the reports, there are some of the people that said the reason why they dumped religion is because they have no need for it anymore. They already have peace. And as a Christian, we look at this, and we have to be honest. We have to say, yes. Yes, the world does provide a measure of peace. But we have to go deeper. Because whatever peace the world gives is fragile and temporary, and can vanish in a moment. Any peace that you have now, any earthly peace that you have now, can be taken away in the instant. Jesus alludes to this in John chapter 14. Jesus tells his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you, not as the world gives, but I give to you. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, yes, there's a peace that the world gives. And the peace that the world gives, hey, that's temporary. That's ephemeral. That will go away. But there's a peace that I give you that will never vanish. There's a peace that is sustained through belief and trust in me. There's a powerful, this, in my opinion, is life-changing. And there's a powerful example of this. Several weeks ago, I mentioned that the Nazis uh, uh, forbade the Jews in the concentration camp to read the book of Esther. Some of you might remember that. And, and the reason why they forbade them for reading it is because they knew that if they read it, 
the Jews would have hope and comfort and joy. And so they forbade them from reading it. But what they didn't know is that there were rabbis that memorized the book of Esther. And on the, day, on the Feast of Purim, they would write it out again, and they would read it to God's people. Why? Why would they read it to God's people in this concentration camp? For this reason. Because even though the Nazis had taken away all of their earthly possessions, even though the Nazis had taken away their families, even though the Nazis had taken away, for some of them, their very lives, the one thing they couldn't take away from them was the peace that comes from Yahweh, the shalom that comes from Yahweh. Hear me, beloved. And I've said this multiple times from behind this pulpit. There is no peace that the world provides that cannot be taken away from you. You name it. It takes one bomb. It takes one financial crash. It takes one rogue country to destroy all of our peace and to take away all of our earthly peace. So if you're putting your trust in earthly peace, as Jesus says here, the peace of the world, it will be taken away. That's been proven time and time again. The only peace that remains is the peace that comes from God. And there's some of you in here today, you're not at peace. You're not at peace. There's conflict brewing internally. Maybe it's because of sin. Or maybe it's because of some tragedy that happened during Christmas. You know, when I was growing up, I used to think that everybody loved Christmas. Christmas was an awesome time. We get presents. You know, everyone's happy. Everyone's joyful. Until I meet people where tragedy happened during Christmas, and for them, Christmas isn't a joy. Christmas is actually very hard. And there might be some of you inside here today that are like that. You know, you sing joy to the world, but your heart is far from that joy. For some of you inside here today, you're divorced. And perhaps this is the first Christmas you're without your spouse or a single. There's some of you, Christmas is a reminder that there's tension in your family. And as you go to try visit with your family, you're, you know, knocking back something strong just to make it through. There's many of us inside here today that Christmas is not the peaceful, happy time that we think it is. And you're saying, and you're looking at me, and you're saying, Pastor Dennis, you're talking about peace, peace, but I feel no peace. Well, let me encourage you today with something. Notice that in this passage, in, in Esther chapter 9, the peace that is given is a declared peace. See, when Esther and, and Mordecai established the Feast of Purim, they knew full well they couldn't guarantee peace. That's why they declared peace. And the beauty of declared peace is this, that when peace is declared, they are trusting in the Lord to provide that peace. That's why it's declared peace. That's why when you read the Bible, I'm going to give you three examples of declared peace in the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Here the, this is the first one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a declared peace. That's the Bible telling us 
that because of the work of Christ in redemption on the cross, peace has been declared to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And you might be sitting there and say, well, Pastor Dennis, how is it that the cross, this instrument of death, can also be an instrument of peace? How is that even possible? I'll tell you how that's possible. Do you know the U.S. Army has a bomb called the LGM-118? It's the most powerful bomb that they have in their arsenal. Anybody want to take a guess at what they call it? The peacemaker. The peacemaker. Now, why do they call it the peacemaker? Because if the U.S. is ever under threat, the president makes a call that goes to a tactical team, and they press a little button, and all threats are dealt with. Beloved, in the same way, the cross, the instrument of death, that on that cross, peace was secured for us because Christ nuked sin. And that's declared to everyone in this room who believe in Christ. So even though you might not be feeling very peaceful right now, I assure you that that peace has been declared to you and achieved for you as a result of Christ. Therefore, since you have been justified, the word justified meant that your sins have been taken care of. That's the most important thing for each and every one of us inside this place. Peace has been secured because Christ took care of it on the cross and it was declared for us. He nuked sin for our behalf. Here's the second declaration of peace, Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What is the promise behind this year? The promise is this, that we will not descend into madness and chaos because the peace of God will sustain us. One of the most glorious uh, scripture verses or scripture passages in the Bible is with the, de- the demoniac. And the Bible says that when he had the encounter of Jesus, he was, what, seated, clothed, and what? In his right mind. Man, I love that. There are some days you feel like, I am going insane. And then there's a declaration of peace that he will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Man, I don't know about you all, but that brings so much comfort to me that when it feels like I'm about to lose it, I know that Christ is holding me together. Holding me together. I'll give you one last one. In, man, I, don't, I have so many here, but I'll give you one last one because I, I know you all are hungry. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. You know why I love that portion of God's word? That it transcends all understanding? Because sometimes I talk to some of you, and I'm wondering, why aren't these people in a straitjacket? I mean, for all the things that have happened to you in your life, all the things that you've experienced, yet you are still, you still have a measure of peace. 
Why? Because it's God that's constraining you and keeping you together. There's no logical reason why many of us are even in here today. And yet the Bible tells me that it's because the peace of God has guarded your heart and it's beyond understanding. One of my favorite songs is Like the River Glorious. Um, And there's a line in there that says, Like the River Glorious, finding peace and rest in Christ. And do you know why? And I'll end with this. Do you know why? In Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 43, there's all this illusion of peace being like a river. Have you ever thought about that? You know the song, I've got peace like a river, I've got peace like a river, and then like a river glorious. And there's all these things in the Bible in which peace is like a river. Do you know why that's the case? Anyone could take a guess how long the Tennessee River has been there? You know, if you're young earth, you probably say 6,000 years. If you're, you know, not young earth, you say a couple million. I like, you know, I'm a centrist, so I'll go in the middle. Let's say a couple, couple thousand, thousands of years. And you know what it's been doing for thousands of years? It's been running. It's been going. Nothing's ever stopped it. And it's a metaphor for the peace of God that flows from him, that it will never stop and that it will continue to go. And no matter what you experience in this life, doesn't matter what happens in this life, Shalom is always given to us. Man, that'll get you up in the morning. Big takeaway, big takeaway is simply this. The need for Shalom is great. And that's why we have a great God. Father, we thank you so much. That we as your people, we're never at full peace. I know because we live in a sinful world. The world is broken, filled with conflict, filled with pain and suffering, and your people at times don't feel peace. (laughs) But I'm thankful that we do have peace like a river. And that peace is secured in Christ. And so I pray that as your people go out, they go with that peace, And I pray that as your people go out, they seek to spread that shalom. In Jesus' name, amen.